you to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. This is the second of two sermons on marriage. It's really a a three-part series that we we began looking at Genesis 1 three weeks ago and how God created us in his image. And then Genesis 2 last week of of God creating marriage. And then now uh, the premier passage in the New Testament about marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 22. It's on page 978 of the Bibles in the pews. Hear God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, it seems like a very good idea to pray before we look at this passage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your instruction and design for marriage, even as we've heard this morning about um, the state of families in America is not healthy. And we pray that you might change our hearts, mold us to the image of Christ in this area. In his name we pray. Amen. These uh, couple of sermons on marriage are heavily influenced by sermons by my pastor and friend Ray Cortez in Crystal River, Florida. Tim and Kathy Keller's excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage, Brian Chappell's book, Each for the Other, and Mark Driscoll and Grace Driscoll's book, Real Marriage, Not for the Squeamish or Faint of Heart. If you're over 50, don't buy Mark Driscoll's book. You won't survive it. If you are into home design and renovation, then HGTV is for you. Filled with one show after another about house design and just a partial list of Shows include House Hunter, House Hunters International, Love It or List It, Homes on Homes, Property Brothers, Color Splash, Curb Appeal, Deck Wars, Decked Out, Design Remix, Design Wars, Design on a Dime, Designers Challenge, Divine Design. That's just the D's. I didn't even scroll on down to the rest. People today are into house design. But from all those shows, I did not see one where there is a design for the relationships of those who live in these houses that are designed. Is there a design for the family? Is there a design that's not just cultural, not just uh, a freeze frame at a certain point in history? Well, yes, there is. And God's word very clearly says that he made Male, man, male, and female. God gave instructions to the husband and to the wife. There is a design 
for marriage, and we need that design. Do you think the way things are going, that they're working out well for people? Are our children in our culture thriving? Are families thriving? Are marriages thriving? Are they healthy? Are people respected? No. And so our aim is not to turn the clock back to the 1950s, to Ozzie and Harriet and Father Knows Best. We want to go a whole lot further back than that, back to in the beginning. And when God made marriage, and a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Interesting right now that when you look at the context of this passage, it was radical. 2,000 years ago in the Roman world, marriage was on the brink of not even existing. There were husbands and wives, but a wife basically was valued, but valued as property. There was no concept of friendship or companionship. A wife was property. She had no legal rights. She could be divorced on a whim for any reason. And a man fulfilled his friendship needs, his sexual companionship needs outside of the marriage with mistresses and with prostitutes. Prostitution was so prevalent that in many places it had become part of religious worship and was part of temple worship. Now, to let you know how things were in the first century, you have a portion of the New Testament written to tell people why prostitution was not a good idea. Imagine if you came here in our visitor bulletin, that was one of the sections of what we believe. You'd say, what is the culture like? That's what it was like. And so the words of the Apostle Paul here, for husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, was radical. It was countercultural. People reading that and hearing it for the first time would have been thinking, what planet is this guy from? There is no parallel like this in ancient literature where this concept of marriage before the New Testament. Now we come to today. I was watching the other night and Woodstock was on. Three days of music and peace, right? 1969, Yasgur's Farm in upstate New York. I listened to that thing when I was in high school so much I wore it out. So I'm watching. I'm thinking, you know, in the 60s, and some of us here, believe it or not, we lived in the 60s. Some of you younger people, we, we came in with walkers and oxygen tanks and, this morning. And so what we, uh, we know it was countercultural. That was the re- uh, revolution, counterculture, uh, against the machine. Everything was that way. If, if, the, if culture said, if mainstream said, uh, no sex before marriage, counterculture was, I'll have sex with as many people as I want to, and I won't get married. You say marriage, we say just live together. Don't use drugs, marijuana use and drug use all over the place. It was just whatever was mainstream, the idea, if you're really chic, was to be countercultural. Guess what? Everything that was countercultural in the 60s is mainstream now. And so uh, most people cohabitate in, Amer- in America rather than, than marry. Uh, it's pretty prominent uh, that there will be sex before marriage. Uh, drug use, legalized marijuana use in some of our states or just uh, recently moving in that direction. And so it has become, here's my thinking. When it was countercultural, it was interesting. Now it's mainstream, and it's predictable, and it's boring, and it's dull. Tell me the last time a celebrity was countercultural. They're all mainstream with what was countercultural. And so into this concept, into this day, comes Ephesians 5. And you know what people think when they hear it? What planet is that guy from that wrote this? Isn't it wonderful that Christianity is countercultural again? 
Because it is, just like in the first century. So we come to this passage. We need a design. And let's go back to the beginning. Let me tell you the context of this sermon, not the passage so much. I told you two weeks ago we looked at Genesis 1, how God has created us in his image, that we are above all other parts of creation. He created us male and female. He gave us a purpose to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over it. Last week we looked at Genesis 2 in the creation of marriage. God said it was not good for the man to be alone. Something was wrong. So God performs supernatural surgery and causes Adam to sleep, and he creates the woman. And she is a helper suitable for the man. She's to be his partner. And we saw that the word helper there for her is a military term in the Bible which conveys the strong coming to the aid of the weak. So here God creates this helper in a complementary relationship. They need each other. And it's also very important to know as we come to Ephesians 5 that Ephesians has six chapters. And the indicatives become, come before the imperatives, and that is crucial. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with truths like God's love and that God has made us and we are spiritually dead. And the only way we are made right with him is by grace through faith. And our position is in Christ through faith. That is critical. That is the foundation Built on those indicatives, now we have imperatives, directives to, to husbands and wives and, and children and parents and a number of other things. If you jump into the imperatives without understanding the indicatives, you end up with nothing but a bunch of lists, a list of things that you'll try to do, and you cannot, you cannot possibly do these things in your own strength. And so with those thoughts in mind, let's look for a few minutes at some of the responsibilities of husbands and wives. And I realize uh, many here, maybe most, are not married. E either you're not uh, old enough yet to, to be married, or you were married, or widows and widowers, or, or whatever your status is, many are married. There's application here for all of us, because the emphasis on the directives to the husband is on as Christ loved the church. And if you have faith in Christ, if you're a believer in him, you are part of the bride of Christ. He loves you. First, the godly husband commits. I'm not going to go phrase by phrase. I'm going to broad strokes over this passage. The godly husband commits. He commits to his wife as Christ has committed to him. Isn't that what it, isn't that what it says? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, the Bible says we, the church, all true believers, are the bride of Christ. If I'm, as a husband, to love my wife as Christ loved the church, then I must understand and experience his love for me. I, if I'm to love her as Christ has loved me as part of the church, then I must experience that before I can show that to her. One of the outworkings of the love of Christ for us is he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So even as Christ says the same to us, as a Christian husband, I say to her, I'm leaving. I left father and mother, and I am committed to you. And it's a lifelong fidelity. And the Christian husband accepts the responsibility to stay. Now this is very important, because in our day, there seems to be a deep inability for, for men to keep a commitment. Some say it's an epidemic. And I think the reason, I think it's always been true, but I think we have a hard time extending to others what we never experienced ourselves. And I'm just not talking about if we came from a home where we were, where the father left us 
uh, or abandoned the family in some way or checked out emotionally and was passive and disengaged. No, if we've not experienced God's love for us, if your tank is not full with Christ's love for you, with God's love for you, then you can't extend that to others. You can't commit like that, like Christ loving the church, if you have not received that love that he has for you. I'm so grateful. I did not know, I did not remember we were going to use the Romans 8 passage in worship today. And I plan to mention it right here. This is the premier passage on the love of God where Paul said, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? That is God committing himself to us. That nothing can separate us. Not height, depth, anything. Nothing can separate us from his love. And so as I experience that, as we experience that, then we can extend it to others. And so the godly husband stays, even if his bride disappoints him. Can you think of an example of this in the Bible? The whole Bible. (laughs) The whole Bible. We are the bride of Christ. We are unfaithful, it says. We are wicked. Yet God commits... And he stays. God doesn't have a trophy wife. God's wife was not faithful. If you read through the Old Testament, more often than not, we, his bride, are referred to as a prostitute, as unfaithful, as adulterous. Yet he stays. And it's this kind of fidelity which brings commitment from the heart of a woman. And so the husband's chief priority is that his family will know God's grace, the eternal grace, And the role of the husband is to mediate the love of God for them. In Brian Chappell's book, Made for Each Other, he tells of a married couple that he knows, he's friends with, who, as he says, appear on the outside to have an ideal family. A beautiful house, they are an attractive couple, they have attractive children. But then he goes on and says, but the wife has a gambling addiction. She steals from the family. So she's been to counselors, clinics, pastors, but to no avail. He writes, periodically she breaks into her family's bank accounts or pawns family valuables and gambles away the money. What should the husband do? Society screams, get out of that marriage. Leave. You don't have to take this. But he writes, the husband has not left every time she has stolen and damaged his future and their future. He has forgiven her and taken her back. Back. He said he asked the husband why he had not ended this nightmare marriage. And the husband said, My wife is a good mother most of the time. My children need her. But more than that, they need to know their Savior. How can they know a father in heaven who forgives them if their father on earth will not forgive their own mother? How can my wife know the love of God if the spiritual leader in this home will not love her despite her faults? Now that husband takes every precaution he can over her and over the family and trying to protect them. But he realizes his chief priority as a husband in that family is to mediate the love of God to them. The godly husband commits. Second, the godly husband initiates. If we're to love, you're not going to find that word in the passage. 
If we're to love as Christ loved the church, then we initiate. God is the grand initiator in the Bible. That's where we get this idea. If we're to love her as Christ loved the church, we love him because, because you were so smart that you saw that the gospel was the best worldview, was it, or because you were so uh, passionate toward the things of God that you wanted to be a Christ follower. No, we love him because he first loved us. He is the grand initiator. And so in God's design, we as husbands are to reject passivity. And we are to gladly accept responsibility. But the reality is, and, and I say this for myself, and please don't take, think I'm standing lording it over anyone or, or looking down at anyone else. Men in our culture, we've lost our nerve. We've lost our nerve, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And it's not just the current thing. It goes way back. It goes back to the garden. But there is an aversion to take initiative today on the part of men. We've been beaten down. And it, but it goes all the way back to the garden. Think about Adam. He stood there. He stood there when Satan tempted Eve, and yet he was silent. He was passive. Satan assaulted the home and the family and the garden and the task God had called him to, and Adam stood there and did nothing. Nothing. And culture confuses us. And it confuses young boys. We're taught that to take the initiative is wrong. It is wrong. Think of the role models. You've got the effeminate designers on the home channel. You've got the action movie stars like Jason Statham or Sylvester Stallone. What are we supposed to be? The soft, sensitive guy or the tough, physical type? What's our role model? Well, our role model is God himself. And he was the initiator. When Adam fled, was it Adam that sought God? No. God says, Adam, where are you? He always pursues. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which was lost. A shepherd had a hundred sheep and he lost one. He leaves the ninety-nine, he goes after the one. The woman who sweeps her house looking for the one coin that was lost out of the ten. And we as men will not initiate until we realize that God pursues us, that God has pursued me. He has tracked me down and brought me to faith in Christ, and he pursues me every day. And so knowing that the Heavenly Father pursues me produces change and enables me to take initiative when I would not typically. What does this mean practically? Husbands, husbands-to-be, if the family finances are out of order, it means you take the initiative to try to to repair things. It does not mean that your wife does not have a multitude of gifts. More often than not, the women are better accountants than the men are. But it means you take the initiative to know her gifts, her many exceeding your own, and you employ them together as you seek to serve the Lord. You develop and you honor the gifts of your wife. And so you take the initiative to ensure that your family lives within its means. Don't blame your wife if the credit card debt is run up to ten or $20,000. You take the initiative not to indulge yourself or her or your children. Spiritually, you take the initiative. Do your children have a father who loves Jesus and who fears God? Do you notice if your children are growing in their relationship with the Lord? Do you take the initiative to speak to them and let them know and pray for them in their presence? As Mark Driscoll says, put your hand on their head and pray for them. Right there, specifically, for your children. 
Take them on a mission trip to impress on them the urgency of the Great Commission. You take initiative in your marriage to have a growing relationship with your wife. Maybe you say, hey, we need to go to some counseling. We've got some communication issues. We've got some conflict we can't resolve. And she says, I'm not going. I don't have any hope that you'll ever change. So what do you do? Do you throw your hands up? Do you say, look, I'm the spiritual one. See, I'm willing to go. No, you go yourself. You go yourself because you recognize how broken you are. She can't follow if you don't lead. You say we need to be in a small group together. We need to be growing in our faith. She says, I'm not interested. Fine, you go. You find a men's group. You take the initiative. Now, you younger boys, elementary age, junior high, high school and older, be a man who takes initiative. How do you do that? Go to the youth group. Don't rely on Greg and Mark Ballard and everyone. You go and say, give me some responsibility. I'll set up the chairs. I'll pick up the song sheets or whatever needs to be done. Give it to me. I'll take responsibility to make it happen. Be a person who takes initiative. In your relationships with others. Listen, I've done hundreds of wedding ceremonies right here and in other churches. And I can promise you passivity does not vanish once the ring goes on. People walk down out that aisle the same way they walked in except they're married. But if you've learned to be passive for one reason or another... Either if that was just your home environment where that was encouraged or you were taught that, God can change that. And primarily he changes that when we recognize God has taken the initiative to me. He's, he's loved me. I'm to love her as Christ loved the church. Third, the godly husband serves. So he commits, he initiates, and he serves. You notice there, before it tells wives to submit to your own husbands, the verse before says we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is all the way around. There's a particular submission for wives and husbands, but submission is part of the Christian life. Serving is part of the Christian life. Jesus said the greatest among you will be the servant of all. That just goes with being a follower of Christ. And so we gladly accept the responsibility of sacrificial service on behalf of our families. I appreciate the relationship I have with Dr. Jim Baird, former pastor here. He's my pastor when I was a child. And I meet with him and some other pastors once a year uh, for a couple of days, and we just talk about ministry-type things. And he loves a good story. So two days ago, I called him on the phone. I said, Reverend Baird, I'm calling. Did you hear about the man? <laughs> Did you hear about the man who got on the train? He had to take a train trip. And it was a long train trip overnight. And so he goes to the sleeping compartment that's been assigned to him, and to his surprise, there's a young lady seated in there, and she's surprised too. They've never met. They don't know each other. They're completely embarrassed. They said, something must be wrong. They go to the porter and said, We've got, you've got to fix this. And they said, we can't train as packed. So they totally embarrassed, awkward. They said, all right, look, let's just make the most of this. It's a bunk bed type arrangement. He says, I'll, I'll sleep on the top. You sleep on the bottom. So he gets his night clothes on and everything. They, he climbs up and goes to sleep. Middle of the night, the man wakes up, he's freezing, freezing cold. And so he, he speaks into the darkness down below. He says, look, young lady, I hate to bother you, but would you be so kind as to get up and find me a blanket? I am freezing. And she speaks back up and says, <clears throat> I've got another idea. Why don't this one night, why don't we just pretend to be husband and wife? Let's pretend that we're married. And the guy goes, well, okay, that uh, works for me. All right. And she says, good. I'll go find your own darn blanket. (laughs) 
If we are keeping a tally of who serves more in marriage, it will not work. You must serve in your family because Jesus serves you. What did he do with the disciples' feet? He washed them. The godly husband has a continual vision of how Jesus serves him. He serves me. He washed my feet. The wife and children should know the love of the Savior through the actions and decisions of that serving husband. We are to be dispensers of God's grace into the lives in our care. Two brief words, one to women, one to men, before I say a few comments about the godly wife. Men, you could say, hey, Chip, I'm not perfect, but I do every one of those things. And I do them better than 90% of the men I know. And yet she still doesn't love me. And she still doesn't respect me. You know what I'd say? These are not here as a formula. This is not do these things and have a happy marriage. We do these because they're right. Regardless of the response. We do this to honor Christ because this is the way he has loved us. Your tank is filled because of God's love for you. Not that of your wife. And if you're looking to fill your tank from her love, then it will never do it. You will never find satisfaction there. It's only from Christ. Second, to the women, you could say, well, what I wouldn't give to have a husband like that. You do. His name is Jesus. And if you're going to prosecute that male in your life and you expect him to be that, you are making a big mistake. Because the commitment of someone who is flawless and completely committed to you and serves you and cares for you and sacrifices for you, that comes only from Jesus, only from him. And if you expect that from any man in your life, whether you want to get married to someone in the future or you think this, is, this guy's going to come along or your husband now, if you expect that from any man in your life, you will be disappointed. So gain your security from the love of Christ, and then love the loser you're married to. <laughs> because we are all losers. And that's why I say that. Not to, not to be funny. But we are all marred. There are nothing but flawed people. That's all that there, there is. All totally dependent on the grace of God. Okay, last. A word or two to the godly wife. I think as you look at Ephesians 5 and you look at the specific commands, it's basically saying the godly wife strengthens and supports the leader. She strengthens and she supports the leader. And you need to know, and most of you do, that it's hard to be a leader. It is hard in any sphere, on any level, whether you're trying to lead a peewee football team or the Green Bay Packers, whether you're trying to lead a uh, fun drive at the local school or whether you're trying to lead as a... As a, as a youth leader with the youth group at the church, it is hard. People throw rocks at the leader, and all blame is cast on the leader. I love this summary by Ray Cortez. He said it better than I can, and I'm going to read it. God looked at Adam, who he appointed to be the leader, and God said it was not good for him to be alone. He's not complete. He needs help. And so God made a woman to come and strengthen and support the leader. Because he is a leader does not mean that he is more valuable or even more gifted. He has just been given a role to lead. And the godly wife has been given the role of strengthening and supporting the leader. 
But the loss of security of divine love has caused women, rather than embracing the role of strengthening and supporting the leader, they do what the Bible says will happen, and they try and usurp the role of the husband to try to find security for themselves by controlling their husbands. And so they don't accept his leadership. They could care less about being helpers. And with their critique and cutting remarks and their embarrassing reminders of the man's failures, they diminish their husbands and make them less sure of themselves and ultimately more controllable. And they despise that kind of a man. But the godly wife, secure in Christ, is able to serve this very weak, very fallible, very timid leader. Women, you have no idea how insecure men are. I don't think women can understand how insecure your husband is. Men in general, you have no idea how insecure your sons are. But you have power to speak words of courage and hope into their lives that can transform them. You have amazing, amazing power to strengthen and support the men in your world. E.B. Hill was one of the great preachers, pastors in America. Most of you know who E.B. Hill was. He pastored Los Angeles for many, many years. He began his ministry in Texas. He died 10 years ago. If you go on YouTube, though there's not a video, you can listen to the audio of E.B. Hill preaching at the funeral for his wife. He preached his wife's funeral. Probably one of the most moving things I've ever heard. His wife, he says, grew up, though he grew up in poverty, she grew up in a wealthy family. Her parents were educators, well-known educators. Dad was a college president. He says she grew up in mansions. Her suitors were wealthy businessmen from all over the world that would love to have married her, and yet she chose to marry an unknown, poor preacher named E.B. Hill. And he said after six months they'd been married, and he came home one evening, and all the lights are off, and there's candles, candles in the house, in the dining room, and in the kitchen, and in the hallway. And she said, we'll greet him at the door, and gave him a big kiss, and said, I thought tonight we'd eat by candlelight. And he goes, whoa. I like this. So he is excited, and he goes to wash his face and wash his hands in the restroom, and he said when he, she had forgotten to put a candle in the restroom, he hit the light switch, no power. Now he realized why the candles were there. Power had been cut off. So he went out, and he said, I am so sorry. And she said, don't. Evie started crying said, you worked so hard. You work so hard, and I am so proud of you, but there is no money. There is no money. But it's not because you don't work hard. That's why I want to sleep by candlelight. And in the sermon, he says, as only E.B. Hill could say it, she could have ruined me. She could have ruined me. He says that over and She could have ruined me at that moment. But instead, she said, let's sleep by candlelight. Women, you have no idea the words that you speak that can embolden and give courage and power to that insecure husband, friend, future husband, the men in your life. So, in conclusion, the wise woman strengthens and supports the husband in her life. What do you do? What do you do right now if you say, I'm an awful husband. I'm just terrible. What if you say, I'm just, I'm terrible as a wife? Well, what do you do when you come face to face with your other sins and failures? You run to Jesus. 
And you realize there's only one perfect person and that in all our failures, all it does is position us to be dependent on him. If you take Ephesians 5 or you take a sermon like this and say, okay, all right, now I'm going to try harder. What do he say now? Initiate, commit. I'm just going to do this. Or wife, I'm going to hunker down and I'm going to do this. I'm going to try harder. Don't do that. That will not work. Run into the arms of Jesus and you experience that deep affection of the lover of your soul. And as you drink in his goodness, it will flow out of you. What will flow out of you to that partner you committed yourself in marriage is the love of God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let's pray together. Uh, uh, Father, thank you for what you tell us in Ephesians, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all headed to a Christless eternity apart from you. And yet, not by our own doing, not by our own efforts, not by our own design, you offer us a gift, the free gift of eternal life, received by faith, offered to us through grace because of what you have done. And we pray for our families, families to be, marriages to be in the next few years out of people in this room. For some of these boys and girls sitting here that are in elementary school, it'll be a snap of a finger and they'll be, they'll be married. It will seem so fast. And pray that you would prepare them, prepare them to be godly men and women who find their ultimate satisfaction from you, that don't seek it from another person, that seek to live as servants of Christ in our marriages, in our families, and in all spheres, whether students are on the job, or as we relate to our neighbors, that you would do that for your glory. May we be people who bask in your grace each day. And we love the fellow sinners in our lives, which we all are, uh, because we've been loved by you. And we are part of your church. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your bride, when we've not been faithful to you. Thank you that you are preparing a marriage wedding banquet in heaven where we will sit at a table with you and we will spend eternity there in a perfect marriage. In Jesus' name, amen.